for this afternoon is uh, you working on it? Get your mic, get mic'd up. Okay. Is Dave, Pastor David Roslin, who is the pastor of Preston City Bible Church in Preston City. One of my uh, favorite mental snapshots that I get is about six weeks after I moved to Preston to be the pastor there, I got a call from this young man at West at United States Military Academy at West Point saying that uh, we had a personal friend who recommended he come over and talk to me because he thought he had the gift of pastor-teacher. He was finishing up his third year. He just finished his third year as uh, at, the, uh, at West Point, and I knew there was something special about him because he said he'd be over at a certain amount of time, and he wasn't. It took him a while, and that's because the car he thought he could borrow to get there was, suddenly became unavailable, so he figured out a way to hop a train and get into New York, and then he found another train that got him out to New London, Connecticut, and then he caught a cab to come up to Baltic. And, and it took him like six or seven hours, and I knew somebody who had that level of perseverance would, would, would eventually accomplish something. And he brought his West Point uniform with him, and I clearly remember that, that first Sunday when he came in to the church wearing his West Point uniform. Little did any of us suspect that it would be about, what, eight years, and you would be the pastor of that church. And so I'm uh, very pleased with his ministry and his work, and uh, he's become a close friend over the years, and uh, he is currently working on his Ph.D. He has his Master's in Theology from Dallas Seminary. He's working on his Ph.D. at Baptist Bible Seminary now, and I've really been looking forward to his presentation here. So uh, this is David Rosen. David, why don't you pray before you start, please. Okay. Well, see, they've messed up and gave me a microphone. So now I'm in trouble. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your grace and your kindness, for your wisdom, for sharing yourself with us through your precious word the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, and the written Word from the prophets and the apostles. Now, Father, we want to know you on your terms, even as we look at how we may defend the faith, how this conference uh, equips us to, uh, to stand firm in what we already believe. And Father, we pray that uh, your Word would continue to bless our nation, bless our people as they turn their hearts to you, as you turn their hearts to you, as you work in us through your word. Father, we want this for our loved ones, for our families, for uh, the United States, and indeed we pray for all the saints. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So this is the one that uh, you needed coffee for. Um, this was a research paper that I gave um, uh, to a professor named David Mappus at Baptist Bible Seminary in a course on historical theology. Real quick on the history of this paper. Uh, year and a half ago, maybe, maybe a year ago. I don't know. It's all run together now. I called Robbie and said, um, I have to write a research paper for historical theology. What would be a good thing? What do you think? Because he's, he's a very helpful uh, in all matters and historical theology. <laughs> he said, um, 
He said, well, why don't you do something for uh, the Scottish common sense attack on inerrancy um, and uh, do it at the conference next year? And so here we are. And I'm really glad to be in Houston. You know, um, I love being in a place where uh, you have to go 10 miles, and if you don't leave an hour and a half early <laughs> in the middle of the day, you're going to be late. But we are here, and God's gracious. Uh, does anybody know what this is, what, what this is a photograph of that I stole off Wikipedia for free? And properly attributed. <laughs> Does anybody know what that is? This is a, what's that? A church? Good. Yeah. This is, it is a kirk. Yeah, right. Do you see the, uh, the, the, the crown on the top of the chapel there? That's, that's, that's Christ's chapel. Oh my. I, I, there are all kinds of things I could do with that, Dan. Christ Chapel in the U of A, um, the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. That's the uh, historic building um, that I chose to use as the background for this because this is where uh, Thomas Reed got his start professionally as a professor of moral philosophy. And the name of my paper is Illumination Despite the Enlightenment. I thought that was kind of snarky. And... Um, what I'm trying to do is argue against the infidel historiographers, the historians who have presented this monolithic view of, of our faulty foundation to deny the scriptures. And so that it's, an, it's kind of an apologetics thing. And so here's the, here's the problem with this paper for y'all. It's philosophy. Scottish common sense realism is philosophy. And I have to talk about it in order to refute the charges and and, and I had to go read it. And I want to talk about research one, just for one second. Research is it's wonderful, and you all do it. I mean, think about this project you might do. Pick any topic you want to do. Sanctification, spiritual growth, well, that's the same thing. Uh, soteriology, get the top five books on it, read them, and then interact with them. You've got, you're, on, you're well on your way to a serious research project that could end up being a dissertation. And that's just how it, it's just list, it's having multiple conversation partners. And this project was very challenging to me because I had to read the original source people like Thomas Reed, who is the original Scottish common sense philosopher, to understand what we're even saying. And I don't think a lot of people who throw that at us that we're Scottish common sense, I don't think they've read Thomas Reed. I, I never did before I did this paper, but I really am glad I did. Um, but before we get into philosophy, I ask you a question. Okay. Over my mouth. Yeah. Was it, were y'all having trouble hearing me? Okay. Where? I'm hearing myself pretty strong. Through the speak. Oh, is okay. Okay. After Dr. Farnell last night, I wanted to go get one of those sets of goober teeth or whatever they call them, the, the, you know, the Billy Bob teeth, that's right, yeah, because that's what I'm going to say, that's what, that's what we're going to be, we're going to be the idiots if we believe in the Bible. What are your inerrancy verses? 
First thing that comes to mind, 2 Timothy 3.16, which we all know says all scripture is God breathed that is profitable for doctrine, proof, correction, structure, righteousness. All right. And then we also, anybody else uh, know any of these verses up here? John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth for your word is truth. I didn't list that. That's a good one. You're actually heading where I'm heading when you go to John. Um, when Paul said all scriptures God breathed, what's he talking about? He's, the scriptures he's referring to for Timothy's benefit are the Old Testament. Sorry, Marcion. Sorry, ultra dispensationalists. We just had to talk about the importance of the Old Testament in its own context. There you go. We have to read the Old Testament on its own before we understand the New Testament on its own. We don't read the New Testament and then read it back into the Old Testament. That's, that's how you got to dispensationalism. We let the Old Testament speak and, and recovered some of the errors that have been going on since before Augustine. Second um, Peter 3.16 gets us more than just the Old Testament. Do you all know that one? It's easy to remember because 3.16... Yeah, he says two things that really set us up. It helps us out. He's hard to understand. Okay, okay, good, because there are some things that Paul says that I'm like, what, what do you mean they're baptized for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15? There are some things that he says that are challenging and they bear some reflection. The Bible's like that. But he also says they twist his writings like they do the rest of the Scriptures. So Peter, the apostle, equates Paul's writings with Moses' writings in that statement. All right. Hebrews 4.12. Isn't that a good-looking sword? I love that thing. The Word of God is alive and powerful, and it, it, it discerns, and it can, it can penetrate through and, uh, and lay us open, and God is our critic it, through the Word. Okay. Second Peter 1, the prophets are led along. You know that passage, too. Peter really helps us with the, what the Bible is private interpretation right but they were led along by the spirit of god now here are your kind of key four verses to describe what doctrine inspiration the inspiration of the scriptures that's the key theological issue in my opinion for understanding inerrancy and this is how we've reasoned if god is righteous and he said these things, and they are from him, as, as these verses tell us, then we, we are right to conclude an inerrant scriptures. We also have statements like John seventeen seventeen that also say it's inerrant. But it's not just that it says it's, it's true. It's also that it says it's from God. This is something that I can't wiggle out of if I'm going to be about the word. And so I wanted to share a couple of my favorite inerrancy verses with you. One of them is going to be obvious. One of them is going to be a little challenging, and I hope it uh, blesses you. In 1 John 1, 3, does anybody know where I'm going here to, to mention 1 John 1, 3? That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, the fellowship that is ours, my translation, the fellowship emphatically that is our fellowship. In Greek, it says the fellowship, even the our fellowship. It's a branded thing. Christianity and the Christian life is branded with the brand marks of Christ. We're Christians, and so we're apostolic. I love to, to read First John because this is the key, I think, to the whole book and really to the New Testament. 
the apostles have given us by the inspiration of the Spirit what God wants us to have of himself. And so fellowship with God depends on our contact with what he's given us through their writings. Indeed, the fellowship that is ours is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We're eyewitnesses. We were given the responsibility to communicate these things. And so we're sharing these things with you. And so we have fellowship. You understand Christian fellowship as dependent on apostolic truth? That to, sh- to have God's things in common with God, fellowship with God, you've got to have his word. And that's what John is saying we I think it's the apostles. That's what we are doing and sharing the word with you and the original audience and then to us. John did said something else, John seventeen seventeen, which everyone knows is the upper room discourse. That's John chapters 13 through 17, the upper room discourse where Jesus teaches what's going to happen after he departs. A lot of that is about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And John fourteen twenty six. now this might be a little bit controversial, but I want you to think about this with me. Who is Jesus talking to when he tells them he's sending the paraclete? I didn't put it in red because uh, it's just all scripture, right? But the paraclete, Jesus is speaking. Parakletos, I just transliterated paraclete. That's the people have translated it comforter. I don't think they've ever called him a down, down blanket, but they, a comforter and uh uh, the helper and the, the parakletos and parakaleo, the, the coming alongside. Sometimes Paul parakaleos par with uh, translated exhortation. But the point is, he's the one that's helping us. He's the one that's our mentor. But he's, he's talking to the disciples. There is a specific audience here. Judas is gone and the 11 are there. And they would very soon become the apostles on the day of Pentecost, they would receive the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses, Acts 1-8, throughout all the world. And that's the book of Acts. Now, when the, Fa- the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Trinitarian statement, John fourteen twenty six. did you see the Trinity there? Okay, that, that one, he says, that, the, the one I just mentioned and, and gave you this long introduction, that one will teach y'all because it's plural. All things all of y'all and he will bring to your memory all the things which I said to you now I think this is more about what the New Testament is than what I do with it now personally he's talking to the 11 and I, I want to say in, in the prayer he prays for them and then he's explicit he says and all those who will believe in me through their witness you know He's explicit when he changes who he's talking about. Now, I'm not taking the Holy Spirit's work and teaching and memory and all that away. I'm saying this is why I think one, one solid reason we have bound our New Testament together and rightfully done it and not added to it. We're, we're under the apostles because they're guaranteed to be inerrant. Their memory would be perfect now, it doesn't account for Mark and, the, and the, the New Testament prophets, but they're under the apostles. And I, I could be wrong about this. I'm convinced, but I, I could be convinced and wrong that this is not something that we, we found one verse in John 14 that we really hang on to. We hang on to the whole thing, and so now the New Testament, just like in 1 John 1, 3, we're really, we really need it. Anyway, I wanted to talk about inerrancy a little bit in the Scriptures before... Before we go, I'm not going to do the context 
section there. Read, read the, the three verses prior and you'll see why, perhaps you'll see why I think uh, the way I do about John fourteen twenty six. Now, this is my math. This is, this is just common sense to me. It's, it's, a, it's a reasoning process. It's an inference that I've drawn. But if you take the doctrine of inspiration from those verses that God gave us the words, if you take his righteousness and veracity or God's character, and then you look at what he does in Genesis in initializing language, for us anyway, initializing language for the creation, that it actually is perspicuous. It communicates and it does. I mean, it, it actually performs a function he designed for it to, fun, to, to perform. If you believe that, then then we have to believe that the original documents penned by the apostles were inerrant. And I did not need B.B. Warfield to tell me that. He did tell us that. Has everybody read Chafer's book, uh, The Inerrancy and Inspiration of the Scriptures? Have you all read that one? Do you have it on your library shelf? Me neither. Because he didn't write it. <laughs> He didn't, that's not in the Chafer Library. If you got one that he wrote, I'm interested. See me after, I want to find it. But he didn't because he said early on in his career in writing, in his 40s, he said that the, the, the finest theologian in the world, B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, who was the great Don, the great reigning theologian at Princeton Theological Seminary, two genera- well, one generation before it collapsed and went liberal, denied the scriptures. The great lion of Princeton wrote many things on inerrancy and the the fundamental things that we all agree on without getting into things like things we didn't really disagree with in a reformed frame, like um, sanctification, the way that church aid sanctification works, like um, eschatology, like ecclesiology. Um, I, I mean, we did come largely in our tradition from Presbyterians, but... They wouldn't have us after Brooks. After Brooks in St. Louis back in the 1800s, uh, the Presbyterians didn't really like us anymore. Um, and uh, because we don't, go, we don't walk the line of their theological grid. But anyway, my point is that this was the one doctrine that, that all the scholars today laugh at. That, Breck, that Benjamin Warfield made this doctrine of the inerrancy of the autographs. Not the copies necessarily, except as they're faithful copies of the original autograph. So we don't have the autograph, right? We don't have the original document Paul wrote. We've got copies of many copies. And so we're saying that because that's an attack that gets made, whatever Paul wrote down, every word was inspired by the Spirit. I think down to the cases and tenses and all that. So... uh, I hope y'all believe this doctrine of the inerrancy of the autographs, of the original scriptures. And I hope you have confidence. We talk about textual criticism all the time. We have a reliable record of the scriptures in, in what we have, but we don't have what they wrote down. I think God knew we would worship it or something. We'd be stupid with it, so we don't have it. I don't think you've got Jesus' cloth that covered him up either. Presbyterians. <laughs> you know, even Darby, who wasn't Presbyterian, advocated, he tried to argue 
for baptism of infants. And Chafer, in his seventh volume, at the bottom on the, the, the page on baptism, tries to make this justification for baptism of infants. I just... It, my soul is hard on us. Isn't it? Anyway, so let's, uh, let's get into this issue of Scottish common sense and quit playing around. I'll give you uh, a little dog rule I wrote for my seminary class, PhD students, and they thought it was kind of cool. And um, if, if I talk through it a little bit, it'll help me paint a picture for you about what this whole deal with Scottish common sense realism is about. By the way, we're realists. We believe in common sense, and we are not subscribers to Thomas Reed's system and Doug Old Stewart and all these guys that developed a philosophy because we're biblicists. We're dependent on the scriptures. All right, so little history. Realism, skepticism, Reed or Hume for us. Which one would you pick between those two? You pick Reed because Hume said we don't really know anything. And I know I'm supposed to say we don't really know anything as it is because that sounds better. But actually, that's what I believe David Hume gets you, and I agree with Thomas Reed about that. Hume is the great Scottish Enlightenment philosopher who introduced skepticism for us and said we don't really perceive what's really going on. We, we perceive it through, uh, through we, we perceive our perception of it. We don't perceive the real thing. Do the Scots know what they've done while the epistemic fuss? Cogito ergo sum gave way, that's Rene Descartes. He gave way to Hume not knowing much. See, after Descartes, Hume says, no, we don't know. And everybody said, oh yeah, we don't know. That's pretty good. <laughs> and then Reed, the preacher, the pastor, Presbyterian pastor, son of a Presbyterian pastor, wrote his inquiry into the operation of the human mind uh, according to the principles of common sense. He said, Hume said, a gap prevents our knowing things as they are as such. We don't know the thing as it is. We just know in our own head what we perceive it to be. We don't really see the tree. We, we have our intuition, our, our perception of the tree. And Reed said, that, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I've probably oversimplified Hume a little bit to say that, but that's where the argument kind of is. From Scotland, Hume had distant reach, awakening from slumber. That Prussian brain from Konigsberg, whose great critique still thunders. We heard a lot of this Prussian yesterday from Konigsberg. Who's that? Who's the Konigsberg that, that, that got stimulated by David Hume and then gave us postmodernism? Immanuel Kant. Thank you. That's, that's what that's about. Have you ever read a poem about uh, philosophy before? <laughs> I'd never written one before this. For Kant, we only know some things as interpreted in our minds. Things as they are are not accessible to us, he finds. And that's, you can read all about noumenal and phenomenal, and you can't really know the, the, uh, the noumenal. You can only know the phenomenal, and, and so you don't really know anything. And, and so they don't often say this, but I think Hume and Kant are very close the way they wrote. Postmodernism came from Kant. Objective truth is noumenal. Meaning you can't get to it. You don't have objective truth. Can we find no Christian man to bridge Hume's gap or scale Kant's wall? The problem with both these guys is they've separated us from truth or from objective reality. And that is, for Hume, it's called the gap. For Kant, it's called the wall. The way, uh, the way Francis Schaeffer called it in the 60s, he called it the line of despair. But it's, it's basically 
these are different issues, but they basically get you to the same place. We don't really know what we're dealing with. We don't know what we're seeing. Seeing isn't knowing. And Reed says, yeah, it is. Well, hold your nose. A Scott has answered Hume and Kant quite well. You've got to hold your nose because we're idiots for thinking this makes some sense with some reservations. Despite the hatred he has drawn from scholars bound for hell. An elder in the presbytery turned moral philosophy chair said things, said you experience things as they are. You see what's really there. We need not prove the things we know. We're made with dispositions. That's the way Reed thought about it. You know, we're just going to describe what we're seeing, how, how, our, how our senses work to give us information. We, we are made by our creator with dispositions to believe on enough evidence. And that's why we do believe the things that we see because they're there. And, that's, and it's within a theistic frame that God made everything that he, I think, presupposes. Uh, the great Dan Robinson is a professor in Oxford. He's from the United States. And you can, you can, I know you're going to want to do this. He's got six lectures on Reed and Hume, Thomas Reed and David Hume. Thomas Reed remembers your Scottish common sense guy. David Hume is your skeptic guy uh, in the Scottish Enlightenment in the 1700s. And uh, he gives these six lectures, and he's a big fan. Uh, Dan Robb's a big fan of Thomas Reed. He likes realism and thinks that it's been given a, uh, uh, not a fair shake by scholarship and philosophy. And he said, um, our, our, our uh, Dr. Dawkins down the hall would say that Reed had a God delusion. See, you can't have this guy be a Presbyterian pastor who gave up the pastorate. Have you ever, I mean, the pastor is a philosopher. You know what philosophers are like? You don't want to come hear that on Sunday. And so, so what happened, I think, is that he found his niche and ran with it and refuting Hume and uh, started a whole movement called Scottish Common Sense Realism that has some drawbacks. And, um, but Robinson said he's got a God delusion. See, common sense I don't think works unless God made all of creation and made us able to receive it, to respond to it, to see it. That's the idea. Our God's design has placed us in a sound noetic position. We can know what he's presented in natural revelations, general revelation. I know those aren't synonymous, but I use it synonymously. We all intuit cause effect. Our memories convince. See, um, you can't prove that what I'm going to do is going to cause the effect that it'll cause. You just know that it happens. There's no way to reason it out. There's no way to prove it. It just, it is that way. And you can intuit that I'm going to drop the mic. And you know when I drop it, it's going to fly straight up because you can intuit that. You see, that's, that's, Reed just says that. We, we, we have dispositions to intuit what uh, cause-effect relationships. Your memories, you believe that what you remember actually happened. Now, we get in trouble when we remember something that didn't happen. And gentlemen, you get in trouble when you don't remember what she said you were supposed to do about going to the store and running around and... You know, that old joke about the lady that was going to make a sandwich and came back with, uh, with scrambled eggs and bacon. And he said, I knew you'd mess it up. And she said, what do you mean I mess it up? Well, where's, where's my toast? Uh, anyway, you got to tell the whole joke for it to be funny. Uh, <laughs> all right. 
We all intuit cause effect. Our memories do convince us of things. And by the way, you have a brain and a mind, and I couldn't prove it, but I'm sure of it. You know what I mean? You know how I know? Common sense. I know you have a brain. You're drawing breath, and you've got a mind in, in, in you, and you're able to think, and, and I, I can't get my hand on that. I can't touch it. can't prove it, but I know it's true. This is how we're made. This is Reed just exploring uh, inductively uh, what we are physically. The things our senses perceive are real, that's Scottish common sense. The things our senses perceive are real. Now, there's a problem with running as far as you can with Scottish common sense. What's the problem? What happened? Ever read Charles Hodge? Charles Hodge, three-volume systematic theology. It was the standard work before Chafer put his out, which became the standard forevermore. (laughs) Do you know what Hodge was willing to accept from the scientific community? He was willing to, to allow evolution. He was willing to allow long ages, Darwin and Lyell, sure. Sure, that, the science has, has said so. And Reed is in this beginning of the scientific thing. He's a Baconian inductive thinker. He's a student of the human being. And his book on common sense, if you read it, chapter one, I think, is the principles. Chapter two is the function of the eye. Chapter three is the, is the smell I think there's six or seven chapters and five of them are the five senses and how we come to know things through our senses. And it becomes a a proto-psychology. He's kind of the father of what became psychology. Um, I told told somebody, I'm not telling you who, that if I started dying up here, just turn your car alarm off till we have to clear, clear the room. Here's my thesis in my paper, because I'm not reading you the paper. I learned that. I'm not going to read you the paper. I'll just give you my thesis, and I'll read it to you, put it on the screen. This paper will argue. The Princetonians were biblical in their formulation of the doctrines of inspiration and inerrancy, and many aspects of Reed's alternative to Hume and Descartes did and should resonate with those who adopt a biblical worldview. You should hear things that make sense to you out of Reed, but you can't trust Reed over the Bible. And the Bible is the is the critic of Reed, not the other way around. So when you hear something that, that you're like, yeah, I mean, remember remember Dan Rather? When he would report what actually happened, kind of had to go with it because it really did happen. But it didn't always happen, just, you know, if he reported it. So, okay. <laughs> love Texas. Okay, so <laughs> I do love Texas. And um, I'm sorry for my my beloved uh, church family in Connecticut with the blizzard that's dumping on them right now. And I pray for them that they're all uh, safe and warm. All right. The method that I propose in my paper is we're going to look at the charge that they make against the Princetonians, all these post-conservatives that are claiming to be evangelical, like Dr. Farnell is talking about, these critical scholars who are evangelical, but they deny the inerrancy of the autographs of Scripture. They would deny what it must say, therefore, about protology or the beginning of the earth against what the scientists have said, and, uh, and for example. So um, we're going to examine this charge and the various defenses raised in their favor, and this analysis will be followed by my summary critique and partial endorsement of Reed's epistemology with a view to points it has in common with a traditional fundamentalist view of the scriptures. And this will conclude based on 
a biblical perspective of the function of language that's underlying metaphysics, that some of the common sense features of Reed's system are derivative of biblical truth and not merely a conjectured prescription for how to approach uh, the Bible itself. In other words, I should have written a book <laughs> and 40 pages didn't quite get me all that I needed to say. I got an A. I know you're all happy to hear that. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I, I, I didn't want to put Dr. Mappis through that, but I wanted to do this work, so I did the research. Okay, so here's the way they've charged, and, and you've heard about it a little bit last night from Dr. Farnell. Here's what the, the evangelical, supposedly Bible-believing scholarship in the history departments are saying. In 1955, now this isn't an evangelical, this is a historian that they're all listening to named Sidney Alstrom. He said that the Princeton Doctor of Inerrancy, which was very popular in 1955, is supported on a foundation, that's important language, of Scottish common sense realism. So this philosophy is the way they've concluded their inerrancy. And I just showed you how we conclude inerrancy, and it isn't Scottish common sense. It's being a Bible person and the function of God's design of language. Ernest Sandine came along in 1970, and I've had a lot of good conversations with Robbie about this this book he read back when it came out. And um, <laughs> um, it's uh, it's another attempt to to smear evangelicals. He's not one; he's a liberal, but it's an attempt to smear evangelicals because of two things: we're mil- millenarians, we believe in prophecy, and we're idiots for believing in fulfilled prophecy and future prophecy. And so he wrote, he's got a whole chapter on Darby that's very helpful history if you know he's writing against you. And, and then also Thomas Reed. We're, we're Scottish common sense people. And um, I think he wrote the Darby chapter to get the, the Reformed people to hate us. I mean, that already hate us, to get them to rethink their view on inerrancy. If you lump a, a Reformed guy in with Darby, he wants to get out of the room as quickly as possible. And, not, and in that room is the doctrine of inerrancy. Because we approach the Bible the way the Reformed guys do, all the way, even prophecy. So it's 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 a great study. I mean, it's a two-edged sword. It cuts either way. And um, then the, a few years later, Rogers and McKim, we talked about them last night. I did, and these are the first evangelicals, supposedly post-conservatives. I think is the language used now that that they don't believe the way we believe about the Bible, but they say they believe in its inerrancy. And inspiration, and they've written uh, a really important book on history. And here's what historians do. A big part of my paper is is uh, in- introducing this. Historians help us because there's so much data. I know you're you're like, man, he's going to name all these names. And can we get some pictures? And yeah, in a minute, I'll show you some pictures. Uh, just to, no, to, I I look up the pictures of the people because I want to remember who it is. And and when when you don't have portraiture from you know an ancient source, it's hard you know, uh, to, to, uh, to, to, cause there there's so many people, but what a historian does or a historiographer, that's a person that writes history. They simplify everything. They just smooth it all out for you and just kind of show you the way. And that's what all three of these books are, the historiography. And they paint a picture that you and I cannot abide. It's not what we think. It's not how we live. And, uh, and so this is the fight. This is the battle. When the evangelicals start swallowing what Sandine said, when they started swallowing what Alstrom said and said, oh, well, we've got to listen to these guys because it's almost like when the Christians swallowed what Darwin and his successors, his heirs said, you know? 
Well, what the scientific people said it. I'm not a historian. We've got to listen to the historians. So, okay, so I'll listen to them. And, and, and I really appreciate scholars that go after Rogers and McKim. There's a couple I'm going to share with you. Oh, boy. It's an important quote. And what it says is that Scottish common sense underlies every imaginable denomination that is foundational in the colonies uh, from from any sort of Presbyterian background. So that includes the conservatives, that includes the Unitarians, that includes... um, Let's see the uh, the the moderate Calvinists in Harvard, all the different the New Haven theology, all this early American theological stuff with which we'd have serious problems in many cases with all of it. But but some of it we agree with a great deal. Um, all of these contradictory movements are said to go back to Scottish common sense, which tells you what. It tells you that you've got a, a magic hammer you can hit anybody with. Just say Scottish common sense. It, it tells you that we really haven't found causation. When it caused everything, it didn't cause anything. You see what I mean? If, if, if you can trace all of the Unitarianism and Trinitarianism back to Scottish common sense, that doesn't really work. Okay? But there's another thing that's going on. We all think that we have brains and we can think and you're, you're there. I really think you're there, not just in my mind. And that's how I'm made. So we found actual common sense that we all kind of have. That's where. Uh, so here's my challenge to you. If someone ever throws common sense at you, that well, the only thing with y'all is you believe in Scottish common sense. That's where it comes from. They roll their eyes a little bit, and they're really clever for knowing that, and you've never heard that before. And you're like, oh, Scottish common sense. You tell them, have you read any Scottish common sense? Have you ever read Thomas Reed's inquiry into the operation of the human mind according to the principles of common sense written in the, the 1700s? And they'll say, oh, oh no, no. I, I might have read one of these guys, Alstrom or these other guys. I might have read one of these snippets. Dr. Hannah says it in Uncommon Union. Yeah, it's all based on Scottish common sense. I, I might uh, find somebody that hasn't actually read it. And that's always a good thing to ask when people throw things at you. Um, because when you read Thomas Reed, the alternatives that these people are proposing are unrealism, non-realism. I mean, I don't think we should consider ourselves rationalists, but we are not irrationalists. (laughs) You see what I mean? And uh, that's why this gets kind of tricky. Sandine's book, The Roots of Fundamentalism. And he's got, like I said, Darby and Schaefer. Okay. Most 20th century fundamentalists and many 20th century historians have mistakenly assumed that Protestantism possessed a strong, fully integrated theology of biblical authority, which was attacked by advocates of the higher criticism. He just said what actually happened, and then he says it didn't happen. He says, as we shall see, no such theology existed before 1850 when they made it up in Scotland. Or the Scottish heirs in America in Princeton. Do y'all know who the Princeton people are, the Princeton theologians? We need to get to that and and share about that. Sandine says that, um, I've already told you Sandine's thesis. 
You can reject the doctrine of inerrancy as articulated by Warfield and Machen and the, and the others, Hodge and everybody, because of Thomas Reed and John Darby. So if I just throw those names and tell you who they are and, and show you how laughable it is, then you can reject their doctrine. That's kind of the idea. It's like an unbeliever looking at believers and not understanding what we think or how we're coming and, and then saying, how would I do it if I were them? I would go find a philosopher to run after, for example. But we do have a lot of Scottish common sense in the background, and you need to know that. Uh, the way Sandine paints the picture, you had li- European liberalism coming up um, in the 20th century in America, and so um, the Princetonians are fighting the European in flux in the, in the early fundamentalist and liberal debate. So that's where it came from, uh, the Princetonian Doctrine of Inerrancy, which is true. They wrote about it because they're fighting. They're, I mean, they're defending the faith. They wrote about it because there's a war on and we need to say something. And, you know, there still is a war on and we still need to say something. And so I thank God for these men that are. The appeal to the original autographs is novel and nonsense. To say that there was, that's just made up. Nobody ever said that. No, it's it's got to be what... Second Timothy 3.16 means that it's an easy conclusion from the verses in the Bible. Just because Warfield's sharp enough to say it in such a way that everybody loved it, that doesn't make it novel, is what I'm saying. The other thing Sandine said is the modern view of inerrancy is monistic. Oh, here we go. And here's why they hate us. If you're a liberal, where is truth? It's in there. It's here. The truth. I just feel that the scriptures are true. Did you just come out of biology class? Yeah, don't talk to me about that. I'm talking about the scriptures are true. Did they teach you in biology class how old uh, the human race is? Yes, and you know, and that's true, but this is a different truth. And they can't connect. And so the, the liberal thing is to say, you don't have to rationally conclude inerrancy and inspiration. You're supposed to have the Holy Spirit tell you inside and just feel the text and it's bardian it's very much like the neo-orthodox uh thing and that bart's i think he's a form of liberalism so here's our, our beloved dr thomas he's spoken here before he calls these people sandinists <laughs> rogers and mckim and these other people that came after sandine he traces um he thinks that, that it's very important their history and there's an article in um the Master Seminary Journal from 2007, you should read, called The Nature of Truth, Postmodern or Propositional. You get these other guys, Rogers and McKim. That is not the emperor from Star Wars, but um, the... Uh, that's an actor that's really a great actor. I don't know why y'all are being mean about it. Um, uh, but there's Dr. Rogers and Dr. McKim, and this is their book from 1979, and everybody reads it. It's a standard work on where we have come and where we're going to know evangelicalism. History's hard. It's hard to write history because you're in it. And so you've got to have enough perspective to see what's going on and what happened. And so this is still a really important book, uh, but we've, we've seen it defeated. Here's what they said. The nature of the scriptures is accommodation, meaning God is infinite and we're finite. And so God has to kind of step down to our level to speak to us. And all God's people said, that's what, that's right. To put infinite God's thinking into my brain without a scale down is an explosion in my head. Okay? But here's what they say. So he has to lie to do it. He can't 
scale it down and tell the truth. He's got to scale it down and, and lie to us. And that's what's wrong with that. It's bad theology. It doesn't really take into account who God really is. The scriptures are authoritative for salvation in Christ, but not in the words used to convey the overall message. So not the words, not the, not the statements, not the message of salvation. The scriptures are salvific. You hear, it's not, it's not supposedly anti-Christian. We're trying to get people saved, and that's what the Bible's here to do. It's speech act theory writ large. We're going to do, uh, this is what the Bible does. It saves you. It doesn't tell you. It's not a science book. It doesn't tell you about science. Well, actually, yeah, it does. It, it isn't a science textbook, but what we have in Scripture is, you take it to the bank, it's really happening in the real world. So this is the, the, the very common, it's very common among post-conservatives and these evangelical elite scholars, critical scholars. The real locus of authority in the Christian life is the subjective inner testimony of the Holy Spirit and not the errant words that somehow he inspired. That's my version of his third point. But isn't that crazy? That's why I put the screen up so we could just all say, that's crazy, and then go get some dinner. But this is, this is the argument. And so somebody needs to do something about this. This doesn't really work for us. <clears throat> Let's see here. And so we've got a couple of guys. Dr. John Woodbridge, his book, Biblical Authority. And he takes these guys apart. And their book is this big, and his book is, is this big. It's, it's a little small book. And it's, but it's powerful and dense, and he nails them. He calls it inappropriate historical disjunctions, the kind of errors they make in history, where they're, they're, they're saying cause-effect from the wrong thing, and it's a very common problem. One that I caught him doing before I read him, I was reading these guys, and I went and checked them out. They went after John Witherspoon, the first theologian at Princeton, from Scotland. He came over. He's the great patriot Witherspoon. He was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And this was my favorite part of this whole paper was reading the works of John Witherspoon. What a fantastic founding father we had in John Witherspoon. And he was, of all the people in that room signing the Declaration of Independence, you and I would have felt most comfortable, most alike, had most in common, most like-minded with John Witherspoon professor of moral philosophy at Princeton University, Princeton College. And, um, and he's the, he brought it over from Scotland. He was trained in it in Scotland. He brought it here and, and taught him Scottish common sense and wrote from a biblical worldview and a biblical perspective and did not swallow the hook, apparently. But um, one thing they did, they said that, um, that they believe in deduction and they believe in induction deductive reasoning isn't good inductive reasoning is good but then he found where that contradicted and I went and looked it up in the, in the actual book I, I went and looked up their reference and they had searched I think I feel like they had found the word inductive and they had found the word deductive 30 pages apart or whatever and thrown it in there and that's the kind of shoddy stuff that gets done in scholarship sometimes when nobody's watching especially when it's dense, especially when it's technical. Oh, yeah, that, that sounds good. I've, I have to read all these scholars all the time for, for courses that I'm taking, and it's amazing uh, that, they, that these people are, some of them, I've got one in particular I'm not going to name, I can't believe he's allowed to teach anybody because his, it seems like his whole career is devoted to writing so that no one can understand what in the world he's saying. 
But nobody, oh, that was really brilliant. Did you think it was brilliant? Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. Did, did you understand what he was saying? Sure. Promote him. I, maybe that's a little bit overstated. Inappropriate historical disjunctions. Read Woodbridge. It's great. It's great. It is ammunition for our battle. And I don't agree with everything Woodbridge believes in. I believe he's a very reformed scholar. But but in this fight, he's our ally. And we don't want to start talking to him about prophecy unless we want to fight that fight with him. Another name, the younger guy, Paul Helseth. I'm not going to try. Yeah, I am. Kios, I guess that's how you'd say that. Paul Helseth. He wrote this book directly attacking the charge against the Princetonians and said, you haven't read the Princetonians. You don't know where they're coming from. Just because they taught Scottish common sense realism doesn't mean they, they failed to notice where it could lead you astray. Now we could, but he'll say, Hodge did. Hodge, Hodge and, and that when science came along and said, you can't believe the Bible statements in science, they swallowed the hook. And so that's the danger. But, but um, this is a great book, and I'll summarize it for you quickly. What the Princetonians were doing wasn't just wholesale accepting everything Reed said. They were coming from a biblical perspective and agreeing where Reed was correct against Hume and these other philosophers. And so they were reformed and they stayed reformed and they believed in total depravity. And that means that we are broken in our thinking. Our reasoning isn't reliable. And that's a really important tenet in biblical Christianity. Man isn't reliable. My favorite verse to take out of context is in Romans 3. Let God be true, though every man a liar. I can just say that all day and be right and still not be in context. Because it's that it, we are. We're broken. And that's why you can't be a rationalist. But you can take things that rationalists say, filter them through the scriptures, and say this is where we see a correspondence to what God has said. And that's the task of the theology in part. The Princetonians included the subjective work of the Spirit. That's Helsa's biggest burden. Is he saying that they had what's called right reason? These men at Princeton, as it, right before it crashed, and then they started Westminster Theological Seminary, these men in Princeton believed in something called right reason. And so do we. They believe that aided by the work of the Spirit in us, we are able to reason the way God wants us to reason. We're able to use reason rightly. So they called it right reason. Now they said regeneration precedes faith. (laughs) So then you get right reasoning before you're even a believer to believe. And I don't go there, but, um, but they did. They believed that God had worked on the believer and there's that distinction. And the way they talked about it from Archibald Alexander all the way through was right reason. That's what Helseth writes so much about, right reason. While the unregenerated sinner cannot escape the knowledge that he is and always will be dependent on God for the entirety of his existence, he is morally incapable of, tr- of entrusting himself to God because he loves sin too much. The Warfield view is not then bald rationalism, as they claim, but a careful distinction between the objective facts, which can be assessed cognitively, and the salvific response to those facts and trust, 
While Warfield parses these things, he does not think that the fallen, quote, knowing soul of man has, quote, the moral ability to see revealed truth more or less for what it is objectively, namely, glorious. And let me, let me say, that's just 1 Corinthians 2 that he's saying there. The unbeliever doesn't receive the things of God, their foolishness to him. We can reason rightly because we have the spirit that is from God there in 1 Corinthians 2. This gets into the question of Christian epistemology, and you and I probably haven't thought about it much lately because we don't have to. We open our Bibles. We open our hearts to the Lord. We are filled by the Spirit as we take in His Word, and He changes us. We don't have to worry about epistemology. We've got, it, we've got this wired. But we are defending. This is a defense to those outside for, for the benefit of those outside, and you've got to remember that. Okay, what's the genealogy? He is not, if you can see that hat, I wanted to say he's not a women's marcher the other day. Um, I didn't do it. Um, he was born in 1710, died in, at the end of the century, 1796. And he was first at the University of Aberdeen, and then he went to UG, U of G. He went to University of Glasgow and was a distinguished professor of moral philosophy. Can anybody guess who he took over for, who retired before he took over? Don't don't get Wikipedia going. Let's cheat. Yeah, Adam Smith. You knew that. You guessed that. You Jeopardy knew it. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Jeopardy. Knew, you guessed it right. <laughs> I didn't know that till I read it. But that that is. Uh, think about what we're talking about. The guy that gave us our economic system and it articulated it so well was followed by this man that told us how to perceive, largely in a world of you can't perceive anything, said, no, we do, and gave us a, a scholarly approach to realism. So John Witherspoon came over um, to the United States, I believe at the behest of Benjamin Rush, to work at Princeton Seminary, or Princeton College, and he was the philosophy professor. He didn't want to. I think there were two sailings, two trips to Scotland from the colonies to go ask him to do this. And, uh, and so read this. If you're going to read the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, do that. But read Witherspoon, too. This is our origin. This is who we, where we've come from. But while Christian, America wasn't a very Christian place, read Witherspoon. Uh, he's the dean of Bible-believing Christians in America in his day. I'm sorry, it wasn't called Princeton. It was called the College of New Jersey. Followed by Archibald Alexander, who took over... Um, at Princeton's Theological Seminary in 1812. So this is the generations. You ever heard of Archibald Alexander? He's the first of the great Princetonians after Witherspoon. We follow him with Charles Hodge. Died in 1878. So when you're reading, I mean, he lived in the day that Darwin and Lyell put their stuff out. That was the, I mean, this was, his theology came out and was corrupted by it in the same generation that it happened, that it was, that it was proposed, um, which means he was reading a lot and he was a real scholar. It also means that he wasn't discerning what he was reading necessarily. He was caught up in the, in the um, maelstrom of, of scholarship and that's the, that's the real danger. He was the president in 1840 and then we went to A.A. A. Hodge. Guess who his dad was? And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so A.A. A. 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 Hodge, Archibald Alexander Hodge. Why did he call him Archibald Alexander? Because his 
his teacher, Archibald Alexander. So A. A. Hodge, and then you had the great B. B. Warfield, and followed by and he died in 21. Remember, he that his spirituals published in 1918 by Chafer, and Warfield went after him that year in the Princeton Theological Review and died two years later. And so the beginning of Chafer's theological career is the end of Warfield's career. And Warfield didn't mean to, but he made Chafer prominent by going after the book, He That Is Spiritual. And next year, 2018, is the 100th anniversary of He That Is Spiritual. And then the last president of Princeton, the last uh, defender of the faith there before they went liberal was Machen, who founded uh, Westminster Seminary in 1929. Uh, so this is, these are the theologians that people like Lewis Berry Chafer are saying, we've got to read their systematic theology because there are some problems with what they're doing with prophecy, but the way they're ap- approaching theology proper is correct. If you read Chafer, if you read Chafer's theology, get into soteriology, he's cutting and pasting uh, what we would call cutting. He's just copying pages and pages of Hodge in the soteriology section. So um, this is genealogy for us. And as I said, Chafer considered, um, Chafer considered these people to be um, foundational, especially Warfield, to his understanding of theology. So I've read you my introduction and my conclusion to my paper. We're going to read the summary right now. The argument has traced some of the key movements in popular evangelical historiography away from the Warfieldian view of the Bible in an effort to relocate the authority for the Christian faith in the subjective inner experience of the Christian. From Alstrom to Sandine to Rogers and McKim, the consensus attack on the evangelical view of inerrancy has been to suggest that the old Princeton theologians were overly humanistic rational, merely clinging to the rationalistic arguments of the Scottish Enlightenment epistemology of Thomas Reed. John Woodbridge and Paul Helseth have presented counter evidence to the claims that Warfielding inerrancy is novel. I've lost my play. And, it, and that it is, was derived from an overly rationalistic dependency on Scottish realism. So basically they're saying you're Scottish realists and we're like, no, but have you read them? And do you understand what you're saying? Because there's a lot they said that was right. We're modified. We've modified. We're realists. We're biblical realists, I think is the way to call it. Um, the value of Woodbridge's critique of Rogers and McKim, I know there's a big no-no, put all that text up there, but it's for me. So you just do your best. In his rigorous examination of their errors in reasoning, along with his tracing of the doctrine of the scriptures through church history, Woodbridge's method of turning their evidence against them using the context in which their quotes arise has proven useful in the examination of John Witherspoon's views of scripture and theology, did a lot in the paper on Witherspoon. Helseth's work has been more focused on the actual statements of the Princetonians, in which we find warrant for Van Til's thoroughgoing endorsement of Warfield's theology as properly reformed, though he did not like his apologetics because he said it violated Warfield's own anthropology. So Van Til did not like Warfield's apologetics. It's classic reformed apologetics. He, he liked his theology and said your apologetics are defying your theology. The anthropological oversights of Reed are not shared by, uh, by Warfield, though his apologetic approach is indeed a reason to reason the world to belief in Christ. And Warfield held that the spirit must work in the whole soul of the recipient of evidence 
or the evidences will be futile. And this is where you and I agree absolutely that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And you're going to say the words of life, and you're going to talk about the resurrection, but if the Spirit isn't using that and the person is not being able to receive that, then they're not going to receive that. And we believe in the work of the Spirit in the, in the, the unbelieving heart with the gospel. And so and we're not going to use... Uh, uh, Warfield's method but uh, but he believed this too so um, I don't want to get into apologetics too much please don't ask me any questions about it (laughs) (laughs) so some of the more prominent features in Thomas Reed's thought like the historical setting that he's fighting against a skepticism that's going to kill your soul Hume will kill you he's fighting against the hopelessness of pushing Hume to his conclusion. Nobody lives in that skepticism, by the way, but, but he, he, in his context, um, he has, uh, we've suggested a tacit endorsement of Reed's worldview and an explanation for why the Scottish common sense realism view was a fit for the American evangelical tradition. And I want you to hear this. Read these people. They're not dumb. They're not stupid. They are disagreeing with intelligent people and they're intelligent people. And, and, that that's we don't we're not i i want to say this we're not fideists we've got an empty tomb we can point people to it we've got eyewitnesses 500 of them paul says paul is an eyewitness to 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrection you know what i mean we're we've got eyewitness testimony evidence and we have a reasoned faith and so we need to study i've said here that um despite certain well-documented exceptions like letting science run rampant and then defy the Bible. Reformed scholarship has not blindly adopted humanistic rationalism or empiricism by agreeing with Reed. Rather, Reed's readjustment of Scottish philosophy to the real world in which we live and serve breathe new life into a wasteland of Humean and later Kantian skepticism. Now, I would be um, the first person, if I was a Kantian or postmodern, I would throw the, the Reed brick at people and say, you're just an idiot common sense person. Because I don't like it. (laughs) I don't like that you think you really know what's really going on. I want you to be in the dark if I'm a skeptic. But I'm not a skeptic, and uh, to me it doesn't make any sense. I have one last thing I want to read at you, if you let me. Read at you. Yeah, I've been in school for a long time now. Um, My analysis of the absurdity of Rogers and McKim Uh, The claim that Charles Hodge and especially Warfield rejected a spirit-driven epistemology, they rejected the work of the spirit in the the life of the the reader of scripture in favor of a reasoned argument for inerrancy of the scriptures. Um, And so they're saying that Warfield didn't believe in the spirit because he gave a reasoned argument. Now think about this. That means that Scottish moderates, and that's what Reed is. Thomas Reed was, he, there, were, there were factions in the church in Scotland. There were the hardcores, the, I don't know, 12-point Calvinists or whatever, and then the, the moderates, and I don't know much about that. I, I didn't get a chance to read about all that, but I know he was in the faction considered moderate. And that may be the, 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 the factioneering stuff, maybe why he ended up being a, a professor and stopped being a pastor or an elder in the presbytery. But the, anyway... Um, the claim that these moderate philosophers so tainted American conservatives. This is, we, this is what the conservatives believe. We think we really see what's really there. 
that their defense of the scriptures is to be rejected in favor of a fallibility view. That's absurd. We're going to take the moderates gave the conservatives uh, their view, and then we're going to reject that view in favor of a view of fallibility against the script that the scriptures are fallible reminiscent of Bart and the neo neo evangelicals. I find it shocking The the liberalizing moderates are claiming that a liberalizing influence from 18th century Scotland ultimately resulted in Warfield's reasoned conservative statements on the Bible's inerrancy, which are then to be rejected for a liberal alternative. Now that's my life right there, people. <laughs> that is the pretzel of craziness that happens in scholarship. They're saying that the conservatives have swallowed the liberal hook and their solution is a liberal hook. I mean, maybe y'all saw the matrix. I don't know, but that's crazy. Anyway, this is my talk on Scottish common sense realism. I hope you are encouraged to read Thomas Reed, read John Woodbridge. Great writer, very helpful. Paul Helseth is also a helpful writer. Get that article by Dr. Um, Dr. Thomas uh, from 2007 in the, the Master Seminary Journal. It's a really great summary of the Sandinists. And if you know Thomas's writing, um, let me find it for you. You could probably Google it faster than I'll find. I'll see here. Where, Dr. Thomas's picture. There it is. I got it. I got it. Okay. It's called The Nature of Truth, Postmodern and Propositional in the Master Seminary Journal 2007. So I told you, I told everybody, you're going to sleep. I didn't see anybody drooling, but I did see some of you sleeping, and we'll talk later. Um, and I, I consider that a great uh, compliment to the timbre of my voice. Uh, so uh, thanks for your, your attention. Are there any questions? Oh, Tommy. Oh, no. <laughs> Darby was not a Presbyterian. He was an Anglican. No, I didn't say he was a Presbyterian. I don't think he was a Presbyterian. I thought you said that. No, I, I said Darby advocated for infant baptism. And I said, oh, we came from Presbyterians. Yeah. But I did not say, you're right, I didn't say he's an Anglican. But I do believe that. I agree. Thank you. Uh, are you familiar with a book called Dispensational Modernism? Uh, by no. a guy named Pesh. No, sir. Yeah, he argues against uh, Scottish common sense rationalism. He argues for romanticism. Oh. Yeah, over Scottish common sense, which really romanticism was the dominant uh, worldview in the 1820s when the British were developing dispensationalism. Is he arguing that that's where it came from? Or is he arguing that's what what should be the undergirding? Well, he's he's rebutting Scottish common sense rationalism more than anything, okay. but he he argues that it was influenced by romanticism rather than aren't, aren't we all? Yeah. I think I think what Rogers and McKim propose is romantic. I, I think see. it's I think it's idealism uh, without you know against realism, and I think that's absurd. Yeah, well, it might have. Been, it probably was in Great Britain in the 1820s, but it wasn't after the Civil War when dispensationalism right. got going here. But uh, don't forget also that two of, when Princeton went under in 29, two of their professors came to Dallas. That's right. E.F. E. Harrison and uh, McLean for one year, Harrison for 17 years, 
and uh, Harrison was Machen's understudy. I don't think uh, Machen was ever president of Princeton Seminary. Uh, I think okay. Patterson, a guy named Patterson, was the president. So he was the department chair of theology then? Yeah, he was head of the New Testament Greek. New Testament. Oh, uh, the Greek, okay. Greek department, yeah. And then you had Robert Dick Wilson, and his understudy was McLean, who came and then a year later founded uh, Bible Presbyterian Seminary in Philadelphia, and he taught for one year at Dallas. So you had Chafer saw uh, Dallas connected with old Princeton tremendously. Absolutely. I've, yeah. I've heard on the, 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 the MP3s you gave me of, yeah. of Chafer, he talks about um, when Warfield went after him. He's, he's got so much acclaim for Warfield. He was the finest, and everyone should read him. Yes. Uh, even though he tore him apart in his review. <laughs> yeah, Chafer was a five-pointer for 17 years until he read the Scottish theologian, I forget his name, and became a four-pointer. Right. Yeah. That's all? Yeah, I was, <laughs> it's smooth sailing for the rest of the day, everybody. <laughs> David, you, you made a comment there, and I saw like four guys in the back row with me back there who all kind of flinched because they didn't know this. No, they, when... David was absolutely right. The the heritage is this Presbyterian congregational background. Lewisbury Chafers ordained Southern Presbyterians. Southern Presbyterians baptized their infants. John Walberg was ordained Presbyterian, baptized his children as infants. Ed Dibler, who was uh, head of the church history department, Dallas Seminary, when I first went there, had it for first semester church history baptized his children as infants ed bloom who was a faculty member um taught theology one of my favorite professors ordained presbyterian pastored bethel independent presbyterian church here in houston ordained you know infant baptized his children dallas seminary comes from a tradition that was initially presbyterian in influence and secondarily baptist the baptist influence came in stronger in the late 40s and 50s and later but it always had that twin things like just gives you a little background into our genie our theological genealogy yeah uh i remember a guy from fuller one time told me that literal interpretation you know was a product of scottish common sense rationalism and that's what abner chow did at our pre-trib conference his lecture demonstrating by the way scripture quotes scripture he refuted right. that whole thing by showing that every time the bible quotes the bible it understands scripture grammatically historically you right. see literally and uh that i didn't know how you refuted that until uh, someone like abner chow came along and uh Demonstrated that because right. you know they they throw that Craig Blasey and Bach throw out the comp, Scottish common sense rationalism stuff all the time. But as what's his name, uh, uh, the Old Testament guy in the book that they first came out with Bach and Blazing, uh, Walt Kaiser said, you know they point out you know they try to say that uh, they're critical of the so-called rationalism and dispensationalism, he said, but they're, they're into existentialism. You right. Know? Yeah, the you alternative know, is modern. Modern. Yeah. See, far that's, worse. That's the thing. Romanticism goes into mysticism, and, and, and mysticism is the foundation of, of, of liberal theology. 
because they've rejected rejected rationalism. That's what they're arguing against here. You always have that that polarization going on, mysticism versus rationalism, and it's when you understand revelational-based apologetics that you realize that that it's not one or the other. It is coming from the text. Right. Okay, we have a question over here from Bob. What was the name of the guy that gave the six lectures at, at Oxford? I believe it's Daniel Robinson. And what what was that about? It's it's his um, Oxford lectures on Thomas Reed and David Hume and the the, the difference. It's, Is it on YouTube? Uh huh. Daniel yeah. Robinson. Thank you. Just t- just Google Thomas Reed. Just YouTube on the little search window Thomas Reed, and then all five people that know about him are up there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I got a question back here from Charlie. Hi, Dave. Enjoyed uh, your paper. I was wondering, as you examined the collapse of the Princeton theology and De Hodge and uh, Alexander with regard to their naivete about the rise of um, evolution, the rise of the old earth with uh, Lyell, uh, what do you think led them to be so blind to the scientific method? Scottish common sense realism. I believe, I believe that they were too trusting of what we could do in sciences. Because read, this whole thing is back to Bacon and the origin of the scientific method. And this is the, this is the train that science is on. It's on the common sense and, and empirical train and so I think that they rely too heavily on the specialists, like we do today, like people do today, and said, well, they must know they're the scientists. And, but the, you could do that because you have a too high opinion of what common sense gets you. Well, the, prob- the problem I see, though, is that neither Lyell nor Darwin uh, were able to show any empirical evidence of their theory. Right. Well, but see, I, I'm not sure why they took it as gospel like they did. I, I can't, I don't know why they believed, but that's what everyone does. Why does anybody believe what they say? I think it's, I think there was evidence they presented. They, draw, they did the diagrams, the, the phylogeny uh, diagrams of the, the embryos. And, but and those, weren't, those weren't empirical observations. Agreed, but, but they look like they are. And to a to a theologian, to theologians that aren't scientists, I think they're just specialized. Well, one of the things, uh, David, has come out in recent research is that in both the case of Lyell and uh, historical geology, and in the case of Darwin, um, there was uh, some dirty linen associated with it politically, in that there were scientists that did not go along with right. historical geology of the Lyellian type. But what had happened was that Lyell was, had a lot of money, and he basically started journals which excluded the flood geologists. I so see. it wasn't that the flood geologists weren't existing, and it wasn't that they weren't doing their research. It was that they were systematically excluded from a f- well-funded journal. Same thing happened with Darwin. Darwin had Huxley c- create the so-called X Club, 
And the X Club systematically went through academia to exclude the creationist biologists. Right. So what you have there is a is a political dirty game play well, that's with like, a lot of money. But that's what's going on with climate change. Yes. You, Same you thing. won't hear the climate change. It's what happens in historical matters with Islam. You can't hear the the they they'll never give airtime to the people that tell you the truth about this and. I think that's Satan. I think that Satan runs the cosmos. And you think? Yeah. I think I think that's what's happening there. Is what I mean. I know he runs the cosmos, but I think that's that's evidence of it. So, thanks for your attention. All right, Dave. Thanks. Great job. Good. Good hard work. Good resources. <clears throat> All right. Any other questions? Dan? Yeah. David, I kind of asked this last night, but something you said about Rogers and McKim brought it up this, uh, this afternoon, and that is the rejection of the authority of the Scripture and the rejection of inerrancy of the Scripture. Now, we know they go hand in hand, but historically, what would you say in light of what you had to say or looked into, which came first? And did one come before the other, and did one influence the other? Because the reason I'm asking this is that where I deal in Africa and in third world countries, the authority of the Scripture is probably the most difficult thing for people to deal with uh, because they'd rather opt for culture and tradition and things like that. But, of course, that would lead to inerrancy. But did inerrancy come first, or did rejection of authority come first? I believe think? my thinking on this is that a rejection of authority comes first, but it's probably not cog- it's not cognitively accessed. I I think it's like the garden. I think that we don't know what we're doing when we didn't, when we don't believe what he said anymore. We just go with it, and and so that seems to, when you present someone evidence, it's an evidence thing. You show evidence. Well, that Jonah couldn't have fit in a fish, or something, and people are like, well, I'm starting to doubt. I think that's where this. And and so, wait a second, there's an authority problem that we're not looking at when God said it, you know. And so I think I think it's probably we let go of, of that grasp on authority, and then we listen. I th- you know, but faith seeks understanding and, and doesn't do that, right? All right, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Just a reminder, we're going to uh, be back here to begin at 7.30 tonight, and... Um, uh, Dr. Farnell will be back this evening, and so uh, he'll be going, continuing on, and then uh, tomorrow morning again when we start at um, uh, just before 8.30, about 8.15 or so, David will be up here, I understand, uh, giving us a little, uh, this morning we had a presentation from Camp, and I will have a presentation from Camp Arete, uh in, in the morning. Okay? Any questions on schedule? Good. Father, thank you for this time we've had today. Thank you for the hard work that, that and the study that has gone into uh, Wayne's presentations and what, as well as David's. Thank you for the insight that we've uh, received. Pray that we will be motivated to further, further study. The challenge for us as pastors and professional ministers is to keep raising our own personal bar that we continue to seek excellence and thorough knowledge and continue to study and never just to coast and that uh, we may thoroughly understand your word within our finite limitations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.